Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 26 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialists R&Q. Firstly, I would just like to wish everyone the very best in these very strange and difficult times. There are much bigger and much more important issues on everyone's mind than captive insurance at the moment. And I hope you are all doing what is necessary to keep yourselves and colleagues and loved ones safe and healthy. As already mentioned on LinkedIn and in previous episodes, we are on complete remote recordings now due to the coronavirus pandemic. So please do bear with us if there is a slight dip in uh, the sound quality. But we are actually actually up in our content production to directly address many of the issues that are impacting captives their owners and the insurance market. So please do keep an eye out for extra COVID-19 episodes that are being released on the Global Captive Podcast feed. The best way to make sure you are getting these is to be subscribed to the podcast on your app of choice. Uh, Common platforms are usually iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Castbox, um, if you're on Android, but you should be able to find us on any podcast app. But I am pleased to say that my first remote guest co-host and a debut on the Global Captive Podcast is Brady Young, President and CEO of Strategic Risk Solutions. Brady, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. I'm honored to be uh, the first guinea pig for the remote uh, <laughs> session. We, we've been trying to get together and for a while in different places, Sika uh, last year and London more recently, but uh, we never managed to do it. So I'm glad this worked out for both of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Brady, I believe you are calling from Sarasota, Florida. How are things there and, and what is homework? What is the homeworking setup for you? Well, things are uh, quite sunny and lovely in Sarasota. I'm uh, looking out at the Gulf of Mexico right now and it's uh, it's quite uh, settling, I guess, seeing the uh, the water and the and the, and the beach and I'm very fortunate to be down here and fortunate that uh, I'm able to be productive working from here. We've got a, a small place so I have to find kind of quiet places to uh, to do calls and uh, to do my emails, but uh, I'm surprisingly productive down here. Good, good to hear, Brady. So practically then, what steps have SRS been taking as a business uh, to adjust to this new normal with regards to, to home working and obviously reduction or complete uh, restrictions on travel? Are you generally able to operate a, a kind of business as usual for the time being? Yeah, very, very much, very much business as usual. I mean, we um, have many, many offices around the globe now. We have a lot of people that, you know, do work from home. And um, fortunately, we were not anticipating this, but we were pretty well set up to have, you know, people, you know, working remotely and have the technology to do it. So, you know, our, our philosophy really is business as usual. Obviously, this is serious, but we're not using this as an excuse for being late or missing deadlines or lack of uh, responsiveness to our clients. You know, I, I, I would say that, you know, shutting down our offices and, and making the decision before we were forced to make the decision to not have people come into the office has, you know, has forced us to make some adjustments in certain areas. I mean, just kind of silly things like, you know, picking up the mail and, you know, getting uh, courier packages by FedEx. And we have a few clients that still, you know, issue payments by check, you know, physical check. So, you know, some of those more what I call mundane things, trying to figure out how to accommodate that and, and work through those um, has, has caused some 
challenges, but just I would say 98% of our operations are, are normal and our staff, you know, they're at least they have the technology to to do what they need to do. And obviously, you know, some of us are, are used to working from home and set up at home to, uh, you know, to do that. Everyone to varying degrees has to kind of adjust to, you know, working from home if they haven't you know, been used to doing that. But but as a firm, it's going uh, it's going surprisingly well. And So let's get on to some of the more insurance-specific consequences of coronavirus, because of course, there are going to be them. And we're already reading about some of those in the press. Um, what, what are you starting to hear from captives under your management and their owners, Brady? Are we starting to see claims being made to captives relating to the risks brought about by COVID-19? <laughs> I think it's a little early yet, you know, to see claims because I, I just don't think that, you know, the financial impact is known for many of our clients. But, I you know, I think some of our clients that had policies in place that would, would cover, you know, varying aspects, you know, of claims in this area, I think are preparing and want clarification on what may be covered, what may not be covered. So in anticipation of filing a claim. Uh, on one or more policies that the captive has issued. So, you know, we haven't actually seen a formal claim yet or paid any money out, but we do have some clients, not a huge number, some clients that have the ability to file claims against their captive and you know, plan to do so in due course. Yeah, and there was an interesting article posted by the New York Times on, on 20th of March, which I shared on, on LinkedIn, and which was essentially stating that a lot of U.S. captives may have policies that could come to the rescue of of businesses in this pandemic event. Now, it seemed to me, and I might have got this wrong, but it seemed to me it was talking more about the kind of 831B captive insurers and, and those owned by small uh, small to medium-sized businesses. Now, my initial response to that was of, of quite deep skepticism because the Times, well, one, because the Times has, has attacked captives for a long enough. I don't think it really understands what captives are and what they do. But you, but you think some of those, some of the points made in the article were were legitimate, didn't you? And you do think that there will be coverages in some of those captives which will respond to this crisis? Definitely. I, I wouldn't necessarily distinguish between big and small captives, but you know, I, I think you know, if you look at some of the what I call enterprise risk coverages that captives have put in place, I think those policies uh, should should respond and you know will respond. You know, unfortunately, I think for many companies, the amount of uh, the limits of coverage they have in place, uh, you know, may not be adequate. But again, having you know some ability to you know, to file a claim and, you know, take you know, the proceeds out of the captive and use it to support the operating company, you know, I think, I think makes sense. So obviously, you know, during the last economic downturn, you know, a number of captives in certain industries just shut down because they needed the money. So, you know, one way to get money if you're really desperate is you just, you know, shut the captive down and whatever surplus you have, you could use it for whatever you want to use it for. But, you know, that's not a very tax efficient strategy because you're going to, you know, you would pay you know, tax on the distributions. So, you know, to the extent you had coverage or, or can structure coverage for claims in this area, it's, you know, it's, it's a good idea and it's, you know, it's a sound policy. And then, you know, again, it's, it's one of these, um, you know, the tax authorities, a lot of people are very skeptical of captives that are covering, you know, low frequency, high severity events, things that only happen, you know, once every 20 years or 50 years or something like this, you know, once a hundred year event, right? But that's kind of what insurance is meant to be, right? I mean, you hopefully you don't have a hurricane or an earthquake or a pandemic problem, but as history has shown, these things do happen on occasion. So, 
kind of planning for it, budgeting for it, you know, having a strategy in place to, to deal with it, um, you know, is is good is good business. And unfortunately, it's kind of, it's, it's people are viewed kind of in a negative light by being you know proactive and kind of thinking broadly and strategically. You know, it's like most captains are focusing on workers' comp and auto liabilities, things that kind of happen you know day in and day out instead of thinking about things that really are strategically important that may help, you know, a particular company survive uh, a true test like what we're facing right now. I'm probably going to tie myself up in knots here trying to ex- explain my next point. But yep. I think where my, where my deep skepticism comes from is a lot of the correct uh, attacks on or scrutiny of some of some of the enterprise risk captives or 831B captives has often been around kind of made up coverages. Yeah, I think there's the great example is uh, hurricane insurance in in Colorado on a Monday or something like that because things that just will not happen. So what my, where, and where my skepticism comes from is that if there are captives out there which had all these kinds of weird and wonderful exotic coverages put in there to to to, to create false premium essentially, just because an event happens now which you could possibly twist one of the policies to respond to doesn't make it right that that was put in place in the in the first place. I think we need to be careful painting with too broad a brush, right? Yeah. And 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 I, and I think, you know, clearly if a company doesn't have a risk, even a remote possibility of having a claim, then it shouldn't be paying premium or buying insurance, you know, for that risk. However, and, and, you know, and, and maybe I think there's a small percentage, in my view, I'll give the industry the benefit of the doubt. I think there's a very small percentage, I'll say less than 10, of those kind of captives out there where, you know, they're they're just bogus coverages covering non-existent risk. But there's a lot of captives that are covering, you know, remote risk where the probability of it happening is really low, but it could happen. They do face that risk. In my view, you know, paying an appropriate premium as determined by, you know, an actuary or, or a third party, you know, paying an appropriate premium for that risk, you know, is totally legitimate if, if it's a real risk. But again, you know, what what buying insurance for something that, you know, never could happen to you, um, you know, is not. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of the criticism came from and some of the cases have been tried is like, well, uh, you know, there wasn't a terrorism risk or there wasn't a hurricane risk. But but something like this, you know, I think is different. I think it, the, you know, the virus could impact any any business. And, and you know, the, and the, prob- the problem with it, and, and, and it'll be interesting to see with some of these, uh, you know, captives that are in pooling arrangements. And the, pr- the problem is, it, is that it's going to hit a lot of people. It's not just going to hit one or two companies that, are in a pool. I mean, if you have this coverage, almost everybody or many businesses are going to feel it. So you 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 could see a lot of you know, pretty substantial claims. You know, it's it's like you know writing hurricane insurance for everybody in South Florida. I mean, when it hits, it hits everybody. I think I think the the point on pools will be interesting uh, certainly because you, you, those pools often will have companies of all different types of geographies, and that's the purpose of the pool, right? Is to diversify that risk properly. But as you say, this pandemic could impact all of those companies in one pool. 
and they might have, which have similar policies. So that that will be that's an interesting one to, to keep watching out for. Well, in our first COVID nineteen special episode released on the twenty fourth of March, I spoke to Joe Holohan of Morris Manning and Martin and Peter Halperin of uh, Passage Law Firm about what types of claims activity we can expect to see and where there might be claim disputes down the line, both captive and non captive. So here is a clip from Joe and then Peter telling me how captives do need to be careful and how they respond to these claims. One thing the captive owners I think should keep in mind is is when they're evaluating whether claims are payable under, say, a property policy that's been issued by the captive, it's important that that they, you know, they be reasonable in the way they handle claims and that they feel that they have a, a, you know, a reasonably solid position. If they want to pay out a claim, say for business interruption, that there's a reasonable basis for um, making that payment under the policy. You know, it's important to, to preserve the integrity of the program. You can't treat captive insurance coverage as if it's a loan that can be called at any time and pay out proceeds. You have to abide by the terms and conditions of the insurance coverage that the captive has written. Are you are you already seeing those those conversations take place amongst amongst your clients that have captive policies that may or may not uh, speak to this type of event? I haven't, but um, I anticipate I will. Typically, in a reinsurance arrangement, the captive or the sedent is entitled to payment and the reinsurer has to follow the fortunes or follow the settlements. Uh, and that's a highly deferential standard. There are very few ways for a reinsurer to escape payment um, under those terms. The exceptions to that are where the sedent or the captive acts in bad faith. And the case law in the US is, is limited. There are very uh, limited circumstances where a captive or a sedent generally has been found to have acted in bad faith, but typically that will arise where Seedon uh, acts in a manner that is contrary or inconsistent with the way that they typically handle or manage claims. So there was there was one case which escapes me now, where uh, involved allocation and deductibles and limits, and instead of using an environmental expert that the company typically used in determining how much it was owed under with respect to certain claims, uh, they didn't do so. And they just kind of came up with the allocation, right? And the insurer was able to, the reinsurer was able to escape payment on the grounds that this was a significant departure from the past and uh, potentially rose the level of bad faith. So the idea being as long as captives are consistent and they go through whatever process they've gone through before. And by the way, the insurer, the reinsurer who signed off on the reinsurance arrangement um, should be aware of these procedures, right? Because if they've signed off on these procedures, it wouldn't make sense for them to challenge them later on the basis that the captive is is a captive, right? So most important thing, be consistent, be open, and, and go through the proper process. And, you know, it may cost a little bit of money if, if it comes to that for the captive to uh, bring in a coverage counsel to write a coverage opinion, especially if that's what they normally do. But, you know, in the end, it's, it's worth it because belt and suspenders, you want to give the reinsurer absolutely no quarter, no space and no ground to say that there was some inconsistency or irregularity rising to the level of bad faith that would give them a, a means not to pay the claim. Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat, and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes, Richard, it is. 
You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer, enter into novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. Welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast, where I am joined by my co-host, Brady Young, President and CEO of Strategic Risk Solutions. Brady, just as coronavirus began completely dominating our lives and the news, the, the big insurance market news story was was the announcement of Aon and Willis Towers Watson uh, would be merging, essentially, I think, in 2021 as a target. That, of course, is going to impact captive consulting and captive management as Aon is already the second largest captive manager in the world by a uh, number of captives under management. And I think Willis Towers Watson is around that 400, 500 mark, uh, I believe. And of course, both of them are, are present in all the major captive domiciles and markets. So of course, I know I know you, Brady, are going to want to talk up the virtues of independence and, and we'll get to that, I'm sure. But how, how do you see this latest merger impacting the, the captive market? Well, obviously, I have a biased view, as you yeah. acknowledge. But I, you know, I don't quite frankly think it does... Um, much positive for the captive market. I don't, obviously, I don't think bigger is better. I think both of those firms were big enough already without uh, needing to consolidate. And I, you know, from a client perspective, is like, well, is there better service coming to clients or more resources? Um, you know, I don't, I don't think so. Obviously, there's going to be redundancy. You don't need two office heads in these various domiciles. So I think there's going to be a lot of dislocation. You know, where where people will decide they you know want to work elsewhere. Quite frankly, we've already been contacted by a number of people who have asked whether we have hiring plans or um, you know opportunities for them to join to join us. So I think a lot of good people are are going to be looking for alternative employment. I think many clients are going to say, you know, if you're a Willis client and you, you know, you may say, I don't want to be an Aon client, or they may say, take this as an opportunity to, uh, you know, to consider their options. Doesn't mean that we'll get it, but I, but I, I think there'd just be, I guess, a lot of dislocation, both on the staffing side and on the client side. And, uh, which, you know, selfishly is, is good for us and, you know, other, I guess, independent managers. I mean, we, we tend to benefit from these changes. Um, you know, we we have seen a lot of opportunities already from the Mars acquisition of JLT, and we expect to see more over the next 12 to 24 months. And uh, I think the same thing will happen over the next, you know, 12 to 36 months as the, uh, you know, as Aon consolidates Willis. I think the the argument, obviously, from you mentioned the kind of bigger is better mantra. That's obviously not one that you you go along with. Obviously, it's just for me to put the argument across from from the sides of the Marsh or the Aons or the Willis Towers Watsons, it would be that they can provide that kind of one stop shop, and they've got all the different types of consulting arms. You know, whether it be benefits or captive management or brokerage. But obviously, with SRS, obviously 
is your argument that you just focus on the captive management and you do that really well and that's that's what that's your main message well that's part of the message thank you for uh, <laughs> suggesting that mm-hmm. but um no and, and again they're they're good firms um i mean marsh marsh has a lot of good people aon has a lot of good people willis obviously has a lot of good people there's a lot of um, quality people uh, at various firms. And so, you know, at the end of the day, when it comes down to, you know, if you're an individual client, it's like, well, you know, who are the people that are serving my needs? Do, are, they, are they the right people? Are they being properly supported? Do they have the resources they need to deliver what I want? And to some extent, it, and it, from an individual client's perspective, you don't really necessarily care about the broader corporate stuff. It's like the three, four, five people that you know, touch your account on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, to your point, it's, it, to me, in this day and age, people aren't necessarily interested in one-stop shopping. What they're interested in is getting the best people to deliver the specific services, you know, they want and they need. So, you know, I want the best actuary that has expertise in my, you know, in my line of business that all, what I'm doing with my captive. I want the best asset management firm. I want you know, if I need analytical support, you know, I want the, the best firm that can help me with that. So, you know, our view is we, you know, we are a pure play captive management consulting firm. That's what we do. Uh, everybody top to bottom in our company, we get up and we think about um, one thing, and that's basically captive management and consulting. And so, you know, that focus, I believe, is a gives us a competitive advantage, and we're all pulling in the same direction. It, captive management is not a, a tertiary business for us, you know, it's, it's our only business. So I think, you know, that's, that's an advantage. And, uh, and I, and I, and I just, you know, I have a lot of friends in, in those other firms and, and I just think captive management, quite frankly, is not a core business of any of these big brokers. You know, it's like, you know, two or three or 400 people that are part of 60,000 or whatever the number is. I mean, it's just not that important financially or strategically to these brokerage firms. And, uh, and you can see it in terms of they don't invest and uh, they, they don't give the, those operations the resources they, they need. And so, you know, again, I have a biased view and, uh, and I you know, personally don't really understand why a lot of these brokers are even in the captive management business. It's just not a core business. And I think they should you know, focus on what they, you know, what they primarily do, which is placing insurance and consulting on, on placement. I'm sure that Marsh and Ian would probably dispute that they don't invest in the captive management side, but thank you, Brady. Well, we're now going to hear from our captive owner of the episode, Shruti VS, the internal insurance specialist and captive manager for SES Satellites. Shruti began by telling me a bit about the company and their captive setup. SES is one of the biggest satellite operators in the world with the fleet of uh, 70 satellites. And we have a captive of both the companies, insurance and reinsurance companies. Uh, and both of them are domiciled in Luxembourg since 2013. You are now the internal captive manager, uh, Shruti. And, and before holding an insurance specialist role at the company, you actually worked in engineering, which is, is really interesting. How did that move to insurance and the captive uh, take place? And, and do you think your engineering uh, experience helps you in your insurance role? To start with, I have a 
bachelor's and master's in engineering. So I have a very engineering and technically oriented background educationally. And I have worked in various fields of engineering and various organizations for locomotives, for manufacturing, and then for satellite operations. So this was a bit of my background. And I landed up in the field of insurance and captives for almost four years ago by following my current manager, Philip Franken. I had worked with him and I had known him before I uh, I joined his team uh, four years ago. So I knew him as a person and I always knew that he was doing interesting projects in the company, which I found very fascinating. So when this opportunity came, I just said to myself, it's an, it's interesting, it's different, looks like fun. So mm-hmm. why not? So you're... Job title suggests to a degree that the captive uh, is, is self-managed to an extent in, in Luxembourg. Or is that the case? Or, or what services, if any, do you use uh, third parties to, to service and manage the captive? So the captive is mostly self-managed. We have an in-house team, small team, uh, but we do outsource a couple of services, um, mostly related to regulatory filings, because now with the introduction of Solvency 2 and more, more and more strict regulation in terms of financial control and financial terrorism. The regulatory and compliance aspect for captives is increasing. So we need support on that aspect and those kind of services we outsource. And then for the uh, satellite sector specifically, uh, sufficient insurance coverage can be quite hard to purchase historically. How, how has the captive or how does the captive help with with that insurance strategy? So as you have rightly pointed, uh, space insurance is a niche market and it's called as a speciality line, which comes under space and aviation. So we followed the big brother of aviation, which is more popular. And um, historically, the Lloyds of London, they are deemed to be quite advanced and developed in this uh, in this field of area. So we can find capacity, but when you use the word sufficient, that depends on the how big your risk is. Uh, normally, what SES used to have was an average size risk in the past days, but the days are changing. Now the risks are becoming more complicated, more technically challenging. And uh, that's where the barrier of capacity is coming nowadays, we see. Yeah. And so how does the the captive uh, help then uh, kind of mitigate that or help you with capacity, if at all? Captive is a very good uh, instrument at this stage uh, to help complement the coverages that one might have and uh, to add on to uh, any shortfall or in case those as i mentioned earlier the the capacity bec- uh, sorry the risk is becoming more complicated for certain markets to understand so the captive comes in and helps to simplify it by taking part of it or most of it in house so then, obviously, we've uh, we talk a lot about the the hardening insurance market on the, on the podcast. How um, how has the hardening market been impacting the the satellite sector and, and the insurance rates that you've been experiencing? So what we are calling is not really the hardening of the market. We are calling it the correction in market <laughs> because <laughs> one would notice that this. Uh, insurance market has been going down for quite some time and to the extent that it was becoming unsustainable. So, I mean, I'm saying it publicly, but (laughs) 
it's not it's not all the bad news because we at least for the space insurance we want to be in a market where the, our insurers and us can coexist we don't want them to perish as well so there of course there has been the the hardening or the correction has hit us as well as the others the rates have increased to to three times for some lines of risks so we we have an impact on 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 our, on our risks and it has become more expensive and what is hurting us most is when the capacity leaves the market we haven't yeah. seen much of it happening we have seen a little bit of it happening but but that's what is going to hurt us and the rest of us in the market. So actually, the, the more extreme extent of of unavailability of cover is what's more concerning if, if that does progress yeah. uh, further. Yeah. So it, in terms of the hardening market, have you seen, apart from kind of rate increases, which you've mentioned, have has your experience in dealing with the insurance partners and service providers, how's your experience there changed at all in the hardening market? Do you feel like they're, they're coping as best they can or would you like to see more more help from them from my experience um, of this insurance market in this uh, hardening cycle is has been there are two kinds of people if i must if i can say that uh, mm-hmm. one who has an experience of this cycle who understand that it's a cycle and it goes up and down and yes it's hardening right now but at some point it's all going to normalize so there are people who have this experience and they are taking it they are more stable their responses are more coherent and they are not reacting to the situation they are acting with it they are trying to say they're not on the spree to ruin the relationship with their partners that's one part the one kind of the market who are more experienced and then there is another one who are new to the market who are more opportunistic and who want to take advantage of the situation rightly so but are not very considerate of the relationship that you build in the in the market with your partners and in my experience in the different roles i have seen in my career in- insurance is one of the one business where your relationship do matter the most so that that's been my experience and this this has been a chance for some of the other service providers like the brokers especially to show their difference of how they can manage their clients this is the perfect opportunity for them to differentiate themselves so if if i can extend the same thing goes to the insurers or the reinsurers that they can cause they can show the differentiation of how they value their certain clients by different conditions and not just by rate but various conditions that they can offer and some have taken it the more experienced people i mentioned at the beginning but uh, some others fail to see this as an opportunity to build those relationships yeah hard hard market or correcting correcting you know, correcting market or not are, were you already or are you considering new ways uh, that the captive can can help you through the, the, this this market yes most definitely so in captive insurance what you say is you prepare yourself in a soft market and you implement it in hard market so you follow this cycle so we of course had prepared ourselves we had develop some products for in house to manage our risks and uh, now we are taking advantage of it we have a good captive with good products that we are managing and distributing the various kinds of risks that one can have and let's say this market has given us a good opportunity to implement them 
So lastly, Brady, SRS has been on quite an aggressive expansion plan out of the United States over the last couple of years. You now have captive management presence in Dublin and Malta. Is there is there further expansion planned in Europe? And I've also heard you may have some interest in breaking into the Asian captive market as well. So what can you tell us and update us on? Well, I mean, you characterized our expansion as aggressive. I, you know, I would characterize it as um, consistent and steady. You know, we've been a growth company. Uh, almost all of our growth has been organic growth where we have built it as opposed to acquired it. We think our model uh, works of uh, you know hiring really good people and letting them focus on clients and deliver good service. And you know, our independence certainly doesn't hurt. So, you know, we, we did quite We've done quite well over the years, kind of in the North American market, and our perception was that the same opportunity existed in Europe. A lot of uh, mature captives that you know were were looking for more than they were getting from the current providers. So we, you know, we thought there was some dissatisfaction, you know, with the current providers. So you know, we made the decision a couple of years ago to uh, to put a plan in place to expand into Europe. So. You know, we set up the holding company in, in Ireland and, and hired a few people and, um, you know, had an opp- opportunity to uh, make a, a small acquisition in, in Malta. You know, as you know, Malta um, provides an opportunity for us to passport into other other EU domiciles. So that was part of our strategy was to be able to expand efficiently into the other uh, EU domiciles such as Luxembourg and Netherlands and Sweden. So, you know, we're, we're in the middle of that plan. We, we've hired some good advisors in each one of the countries to kind of help us scout out the best way to proceed to expand in those countries. So it'll be through a combination of, uh, you know, hiring really good people locally, as well as looking at some potential acquisitions if we think there's a good fit. We're also investing heavily on the consulting side of the business. We think there's a big need in Europe for kind of independent consulting, not only for feasibility studies, but for strategic reviews, uh, expansion ideas. So uh, it's not quite public yet, but but we've hired uh, a couple additional people that will um, you know strengthen our capabilities to deliver consulting support in in Europe. So. You know, I, it's a long-term plan. It's not going to happen overnight, but I, you know, we're committed, you know, to expanding in Europe uh, and think there's a good, op- good long-term opportunity there. And uh, so, watch this space. I think over the next um, couple years and beyond, we're, you know, we're hoping to, you know, establish a credible presence in, uh, you know, in Europe as we have done in the other, you know, other domiciles globally. I remember when it was first announced when you entered into uh, into Ireland with with the uh, subsidiary there, and I, my 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 initial response was quite skeptical skeptical simply because, and this was before the the market turned, but simply because we the capital formation activity was so. Uh, light or flat or negative even uh, in in Europe over the last five or ten years you know, as a result of Salt to two primarily, but you obviously see opportunity there, but not so much on just on new formations, but on existing captives and 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 working with those. Yeah, you know, it's 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 uh, it's on both sides, um, and obviously we didn't know. I'd like to say I did know, but I didn't know the market was going to change, uh, so. Uh, you know, so much, but, you know, the, the current market conditions, we're seeing a lot of feasibility uh, opportunities in Europe. Um, 
But, you know, if you look at our firm historically, roughly half of our client base has come from new formations where we did the feasibility study and we formed the captive and we continue to provide ongoing management. Uh, the other half have been takeovers where for one reason or another, the clients decided they wanted to change managers and we were selected. So, so you know, I especially with, you know, the Marsh um, acquisition of JLT and now the, uh, you know, the Aon acquisition of Willis, uh, I, I expect a lot of, uh, you know, captive owners in Europe are going to want to reassess who they're going business with, and hopefully we'll get, you know, we'll get a shot at some of those uh, opportunities and win, you know, win our fair share. I mean, it's interesting. Luxembourg, for example, um, um, there's probably been at least ten or fifteen percent of of um, the captives in Luxembourg have changed managers in the last twelve months, and obviously we we. Unfortunately, we weren't, you know, we weren't there yet. We weren't on the ground, so we didn't get a chance to compete for those. But, but anyway, you know, mature market like Luxembourg, I think it's telling to see uh, that there's been that much movement among existing captives, and uh, and I, you know, I expect that trend to continue not only in Luxembourg but other domiciles. I, I also think that, um, you know, a lot of, as, as you know, Richard, a lot of uh, um, captives in Europe are self-managed and, um, and you know, I think there are pluses and minuses to self-management. I think, uh, you know, the, the negative is you, the perspective you have is you have one captive. That's the only, the only captive you look at. So I think a lot of those large self-managed captives are looking for some fresh ideas, some outside perspective. And I think some of the companies may be rethinking whether self-management or, or total self-management is the best way to move, you know, to move forward. So I think, I think some of those self-managed captives may decide they want to outsource certain things to, you know, to other firms. So we, we anticipate, you know, seeing some opportunities there. So we can expect you. You touched quite a bit there on Luxembourg, Brady. We can expect to see you at the European Captive Forum in in November in Luxembourg. I hope so. I'm uh, ready to get back on the road. Ready to uh, see friends and colleagues at some of the captive conferences. I miss. Uh, it's a shame some of these things have had to be postponed or put off this year. So I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, being in Europe in, in November and hopefully sooner. Great. Well, thank you, Brady. Absolutely fantastic finally having you on the Global Captive Podcast. I'm, I'm sorry we can't be doing it in person, but this is certainly the next best thing. So I really do appreciate you, you coming on uh, to have a chat with me this week. And I'm sure our listeners will will appreciate it as well. Thank you, Richard. I'm, I'm impressed with what you're doing. I'm pleased you decided to uh, launch this venture and wish you uh, wish you all the best in the future and if we can help in any way please reach out to me fantastic well that is it for the latest episode of the global captive podcast i would like to say thank you to brady young again for being my first virtual co-host to joe holohan and peter halperin for providing some insight into the claims activity regarding covid19 and true tvs of ses satellites for being our captive owner interview this time stay safe well and see you next time captives